Welcome to Vineyard Church of Hopkinton. We are a church located in Hopkinton, Massachusetts, filled with people who love Jesus, love each other, and love our community. As followers of Jesus, we are looking to experience the Holy Spirit, to create a multicultural community, and to pursue kingdom of God justice in our community. You're welcome to join us Sundays at 9 a.m. and 11 a.m. at 84 South Street in Hopkinton for our in-person services. But today, we're grateful that you're joining us here online to worship Jesus together. For more information about our church, visit vineyardhopkinton.org. And today, our hope is that you encounter Jesus and that you walk away changed by the reality of his love. Welcome to church. Hey everybody, how's it going today? Good, good. My name's Stephen. I'm one of the pastors here. And uh, I want to greet everybody who's online. Thanks for joining us today. Uh, we're grateful that you are worshiping with us. Uh, and we hope that you experience the Holy Spirit the same way that we hope everybody here experiences the Holy Spirit this morning. So here's something that I firmly buy into, and that's this that we live out what it is that we believe. Here's what I mean by that. That we, uh, the, the way that we live, the risks that we take, the choices that we make, the relationships that we choose to pour into are a reflection of what it is that we believe as people. Which does make me think of some crazy beliefs that we have. I don't know if you have any crazy beliefs. Um, for instance, one of the things that I like to uh, tease our daughters about is that I believe in unicorns. And I, I, I keep the, this is a pretty running joke, you know, in our family, uh, that I believe in unicorns and that they live in Australia because how many people here have been to Australia? Exactly. <laughs> if no one can disprove it, then it's really hard. So unicorns live in Australia. However, I'm the one who's been foolish in this because I've recently found out that unicorns don't live in Australia. They live in Michigan because you can actually buy a hunting license for unicorns in the state of Michigan. So there you go. Next vacation planned. You're welcome. Uh, Another thing that I believe in is the Cleveland Browns. And I was talking to my barber about this this week. He's a Patriots fan. I'm a Browns fan. We were having this conversation. And the conversation has become much more even since Tom Brady left. So I'm really grateful for that. Uh, I don't get dogged quite as much anymore. Um, but we were having this conversation. And, you know, there's this thing with the Browns fans that we are pretty diehard in all seasons and times. Like, we believe that they can win all the time. Even when it may not look like that's a reality, we still believe. There was a Browns fan who in his obituary wrote that he wanted uh, six Cleveland Browns to be his pallbearers. And he followed that up by saying it was so that they could let him down one more time. Uh, there you go, you're welcome. You know, I also believe that sharks are dangerous. But I found out this week something really interesting that I should believe are dangerous as well. And that's that you are twice as likely to get killed by a vending machine as you are by a shark. 
which should be impacting how I live my life because our beliefs shape how we live, right? Uh, so what have you been shaped into by your beliefs? There's this word that I want to toss out, a, a theological word, uh, and it's this, Christoformity, Christoformity. Uh, and it's the process of being shaped into the image of Jesus, into the likeness of Jesus. It's a process of living out our theology. And so if we're living out our theology, that means two things that are fairly obvious, hopefully, to us. One is that we know what our theology is, right? That's helpful. Uh, and two, that we are actively living it out in community, which means with other people not just by ourselves. Uh, that's an important part. I know that's pretty deep, uh, but it points to something really important, that theology is best lived out in community. It's best learned in community because Jesus tells us to live out our lives in community, right? He's pretty ex explicit about that. He talks about it over and over again, that it's in community that what we believe becomes real and deep and grows. And so today I want to look at how Paul encouraged a church in Romans, uh, or in Rome, to live, uh, and how he deepened their theology by talking about what was actually going on in their community. We're beginning this new series through the book of Romans uh, called In This Together, Faith for Community, and that's where we're going to be for the next couple of months. I think it's going to be really good. If you don't know much about Romans, though... I would guess that some people in the room got really excited because they really like Romans because it feels like really deep and like you know, there's all this like philosophy and stuff in it. And there's other people in the room that are like, oh no, I'm going to have to pay attention during the sermons the same way that I do when I read the book of Romans, lightly skimming across the top except for chapters 8 and 12, which feel a little bit more comfortable to me. Uh, Romans is a difficult book for most people. And part of that reason, I think, is because we look at it as if it is only a book of theology rather than being a letter written to a church. And so I want to talk about the church that it's written to before we jump into all the theology, because theology is lived out in community. Uh, and this is written by Paul to this church, actually churches, in the city of Rome, who was a wide range of, of people that were a part of it with different experiences. And he writes this letter talking to them in the midst uh, about their issues related to politics, related to diversity, related to uh, Rome and being a Roman citizen, and related to Jewish uh, religious issues that have creeped into the church. And it's out of that context that the theology grows within this book. Why is it out of context that it grows? Does anybody remember the thing that I said a few weeks ago about context? That context is king. Our, I had a seminary professor who repeated that over and over again. Context matters. So the context that it's written within the Bible, within the grand story of Jesus, and the context of who it's written to matters. The people that we're going to live this out matter if we read this well. Romans is a letter that needs a lot of context. Uh, the beginning doesn't give us a lot. And so most of the time what we do is we jump in, like I hinted towards, and we read one in chapters one and two. And we're like, okay, this is fine. Then we get to three and four, five, six, seven, and we're like, whoop, 
going over my head. We get to chapter 8, we're like, ah, oh, this makes me feel so good about myself. God loves me, and there's nothing that could ever stop that, and I'm really happy about this. And then we get to 9 through 11, and we're like, zoning out again. And then we get to chapter 12, and we're like, oh, man, I'm really convicted. I need to worship with my whole self and, and like live this out really well. And then we just kind of skip through 13 through 16. It's often how we read it. Uh, and that's understandable because it can get muddled without knowing the context. So how can we read it better? Here's a crazy idea. We read it backwards. So let me lay this out for us. There's a theologian named Scott McKnight who wrote a book called Reading Romans Backwards. And in it, he says this. Romans 12 through 16 reveals the pastoral context of Romans. It's only after comprehending Paul's pastoral aims that we can see the theology of Romans 111, 1 through 11, for what it is. So in order to understand the beginning, we need to know what the end is. So I am going to start in chapter 16 this morning. I know. This is like life-changing. Like it, it's really shaking you up. Now, if you're a, a reading snob like me, this might bother you a lot. And it bothers me to start at the end. Like, I don't, I don't read the last page first. I don't, I'm not going to ask you to raise your hands because I want to still like you afterwards. Uh, but, you know, there's some people who read the last page. Like, my daughter and I had a conversation about this recently because she was... Uh, reading a fantasy series and she read the last page or the last couple of pages and I was horrified. You did what? Like they wrote this entire book and created this whole world so that you could get engrossed in it and start to like live it out and really become, uh, and you just skip to the end? Like, uh, where have I failed as a parent? What is wrong? Uh, I'm, I get a little, you know, a little serious about my reading. Uh, there was one fantasy author who said this, you could scan to the end and read the last page, but know that by doing so, you would violate every holy and honorable storytelling principle known to man, thereby throwing the universe into chaos and causing grief to untold millions. I do agree with that. But there are researchers at UC San Diego who did uh, some research into what would happen if people read the last page of a book before they read the story. And so they had lots of people read the last page and what was their experience versus other people's. And you know what they found out? They enjoyed the book more when they knew the ending. Color me disappointed. Very, very disappointed. This is what they said. So it could be that once you know how it turns out, it's cognitively easier. You're more comfortable processing the information and you can focus on a deeper understanding of the story. So because smart people have proven that this is the better way to read it, I will also go along with what they say and read the last chapter first uh, in hopes that we can understand the book, the context of Romans a little bit more as we jump into this series. Will you pray with me? And then we're going to read from Romans 16. Holy Spirit, we just thank you that you are here with us, that you're here uh, in this building with us, that you're here with us in our homes, uh, wherever it is that we are, we are watching from. We thank you that uh, you love us so much that you take time to, to make sure that we know that you're here. 
that you want us to encounter you. You want us to be changed by you. And so we ask for that. I pray this morning that we will learn how to live out our theology more clearly, uh, that we can uh, learn how to live out what it is that you've taught us well in our day-to-day lives as a part of community, both in the church and outside of the church and the people that we're around, that we can show people a clearer reflection of who you are and what your great love means to our world. So we ask for you to come right now in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, Romans 16, 1 through 16. If you have your Bible, open up. You can look it up in your phone if you don't uh, and read this along with me. We do have Bibles in the back if you want one of those. Uh, Let me start here in verse 1. I commend to you our sister Phoebe, who is a deacon in the church in Sincrea. So just real quick, Sincrea is a port city of Corinth. So the book of Corinthians written to her church. Welcome her in the Lord as one who is worthy of honor among God's people. Help her in whatever she needs, for she has been helpful to many and especially to me. Give my greetings to Priscilla and Aquila, co-workers in the ministry of Christ Jesus. In fact, they once risked their lives for me. I am thankful to them, as so are all the Gentile churches. Also give my greetings to the church that meets in their home. Greet my dear friend Epinetus. He was the first person from the province of Asia to become a follower of Christ. How cool is that side note? Like, we know who the first follower of Jesus was in Asia. Uh, That's pretty sweet. Give my greetings to Mary, who has worked so hard for your benefit. Great Andronicus and Junia, my fellow Jews, who were prisoners with me. They are highly respected among the apostles and became followers of Christ before I did. Junia is a woman, which means there was an example of a woman, a female apostle in the New Testament. Uh, Greet Ampelitis, my dear friend of the Lord. Greet Urbanus, our co-worker in Christ. And my dear friend uh, Stachus. I'm going to guess at that. Uh, These are common slave names. So he is greeting slaves at this point. Greet Apelles, a good man whom Christ approves, and give my greetings to the believers from the house of Aristobulus. Greet Herodian, my fellow Jew. Greet the Lord's people from the household of Narcissus. Give my greetings to Tryphena and Tryphosa, the Lord's workers, and to dear Persis, who has worked hard for the Lord. Greet Rufus, whom the Lord picked out to be his very own, and also his dear mother, who has been a mother to me. Greet uh, Asencritus, Phlegon, Hermes, Petrobus, Hermas, and the brothers and sisters who meet with them. Give my greetings to Philogus, Julia, Nereus, and his sister, and to Olympus and all the believers who meet with them. Greet each other with a sacred kiss. All the churches of Christ send you their greetings. Let's talk about three characters that are talked about right here. The letter carrier, the church, and the author. And I want to ask this question. What does this say about our theology? And how can we actively live this out? Because we live out what it is that we believe. So first, who is the letter carrier for the letter to the Roman church? Well, in verse 1, it says, I commend to you our dear sister Phoebe. Phoebe is the letter carrier for this. Phoebe is a Gentile convert uh, because her name means Titanus, which uh, no self-respecting Jewish person would ever name their child after a uh, Greek god. Uh, So that's what gives us that little clue there. Uh, And she's also a deacon in the church. 
Now, deacon is a term that means servant often in the New Testament, but it's also a, a, a established a title and position within the early church. And we're given this starting in Acts chapter 6, where Stephen and Philip and a few others are named as uh, deacons in the church in Rome to go care for the, uh, the poor and the widows who were in uh, the church in Jerusalem. And 1 Timothy 3, 8 through 13 tells us what a deacon looks like. It's someone with integrity who lives their life with honesty. They're committed to following Jesus, respected by those in and out of the church, full of self-control, loved and respected by their spouse and kids. This is somebody you would want to follow, right? That's a pretty good list of characteristics for a leader. And this is who Paul is saying Phoebe is. So this is who Phoebe was. She was the letter carrier. Now, the letter carrier isn't the male person. It is somebody who brings the letter and then exposits it, preaches from it, gives all the extra details surrounding it that Paul would have given to them. They would have spent hours talking to Paul about what they were teaching about, about who needed to hear what, about which house church needed certain things highlighted and which house church needed other things highlighted. The, the letter carrier would have known everything about these churches as they went to this church so that they could really lay out the entirety of this letter to the church. They add extra things for the leaders, like they are essentially the face of Paul to the church in Rome, which means that for the Roman church, the face of Paul was experienced as the face of Phoebe when they would have heard this letter. So what does this say about our theology? Well, it first, it first off means that the old barriers have been broken down because Phoebe is Gentile and she's a woman. And that changes things quite a bit from how, what would have been expected. Paul was confidently placing this letter in her hands with all the extras and saying, go and deliver it. Go and do what it is uh, that, I've, that I've given to you. I trust you to carry this letter to this church in Rome. In Roman culture, which was male dominant, this mattered. In Jewish religious culture, which was obviously Jewish dominant and male dominant, this would have mattered. These were statements that Paul was making by handing this over to Phoebe, a Gentile woman. He was teaching us something. He was teaching us that in the church, that women are given equal status and ability to be able to teach in the church. He's also teaching us that ethnicity does not matter it's not a barrier in the church. Any person that God has called can live out their calling that Jesus has given to them. So how do we actively live this out? Well, hopefully in a church like ours, you're kind of like, yeah, I get it. We do this. We have a, a female lead pastor. Like we have women who are speaking into our lives. We've uh, tried to make an effort to have people from uh, other who, who don't speak English as their first language, who are from other countries, who are different ethnicities, who can speak into the life of our church, who can lead us well. But we want to keep doing those things. We want to keep breaking down any barriers that exist for people. You know, I, we've mentioned this story probably maybe too many times. It gets quoted a lot in our house because uh, it's so darn cute. But my, uh, my little nephew loved following me around when, I was, when, he was, when he was little. And we were at his house, and I went to the bathroom. 
and there was like a one inch crack between the door and the floor. And so he gets on his hands and knees, lays on his belly, and he looks through that crack. And he starts talking to me. Hey, Uncle Stephen. Hey, Uncle Stephen. And then he, he keeps going. And he, he looks and he sees my feet. And he gets so excited and he runs around the house saying, I saw Uncle Stephen's feet. I saw them. And he goes and tells his mom and Sarah. And like he was so excited about it. Friends, are we finding the cracks and the barriers with joy, like my little nephew did. When we see those spots, are we looking through and we're saying, there's so much there. If only I could stick a wedge and, you know, a hammer and start widening this gap. Like, are we actively working to create more room for people to be able to live into the calling that God has for them with joy in this same way? That's what we're called to. So the next noun, the church. Who is the church in Rome? So there are five house churches named in this section of Rome. I'm not going to go through them all because it takes too much time. But each church probably didn't hold more than 40 people, 30 to 40, because they met in homes, not in big buildings. Uh, and they uh, actually didn't meet inside the house. They would have met in courtyards. Now, most of these house churches were in immigrant-heavy, uh, low-income uh, neighborhoods within towns, uh, which meant that they would have met in the courtyard of the apartment buildings that they lived within. And there were a couple of them that lived in or that met in the homes of wealthy people. Uh, but just a couple. Mo for the most part, uh, they were in uh, communal spaces within apartment complexes. The church in Rome was filled with a wide variety of people, uh, Jews and Gentiles. It, the list that we're given here shows that they were led by craftsmen, uh, by slaves and former slaves, which is pretty cool. Uh, that was pretty extraordinary, actually, uh, with a sprinkling of high-status people, men and women, of course. Uh, it was a variety of people who were leading this church. No more than 200 people in a city of over 1 million. Can you imagine just that, like, percentage-wise? They were not the majority at all. They were a very, very, very small minority within their town. So what does this say about our theology? Again, this list of leaders is so important because it points to the lived out theology of Paul and the early church, of the fact that people who otherwise would never have been given leadership were all of a sudden placed in positions to live out their calling. Can you imagine going to a church where a slave gets up to preach to their master? But this is essentially what Paul is teaching us is going on in this church. Like this is kind of mind-blowing to see the cultural barriers that were being broken down in these churches. It wasn't male-dominant. It wasn't Roman citizen-dominant. It wasn't Jewish-dominant. It was uh, led, it was very female. It was very middle-class to poor with a few high-status people. It was Jewish and Gentile, included slaves and freed slaves. And Paul in Galatians 3.27 writes, all who have been united with Christ and baptism have put on Christ like putting on new clothes. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. To the church in Rome, Paul says, it, it doesn't matter if you're Jew or Gentile, if you have power, if you don't have power, what your background is, what matters is what Jesus has called you to and living that out 
well. What matters is that you have been united as one body and that as one, you are being shaped into the image of Jesus and that you need to live that out. So how do we live this out? Well, can I ask, who speaks into your life? Who do you listen to? Who do you go to? And do they look completely like you? Do they have the same experiences as you do? Uh, are there, is there any diversity in who's speaking into your life? Are you allowing people from different backgrounds uh, to be able to pour into your life? When we live in an echo chamber, we don't get formed, we get reinforced. And I think that's important because, you know, like, for instance, uh, social media kind of forces us into an echo chamber with the algorithms. And when that's all that we have coming in, we are only reinforced in our thoughts and belief systems instead of being formed by others. We need to be formed, not just reinforced, because if we're reinforced, then that just means that we're only getting told that our preferences are good. That's what's getting placed into us at that point. We need to be united and shaped together as one body with all of our differences and diversity and allow that to pour into us. That's what Paul's telling us here. And so let me talk about Paul, the author, and go into this a little bit more. You know, Paul was radical. Like I said, these barriers that he's breaking down would not have been comfortable for anybody in his culture, in his time. Uh, but Paul didn't expect everyone to just be like, okay, I can live like this other person. You know, okay, I can give up the, the practices that I've had for my entire life and just, you know, start doing what these other... No, he, he assumed that differences would be expected. Like, he said differences are okay. Listen to this in Romans 14. For instance, one person believes that it's all right to eat anything, but another believer with a sensitive conscience will only eat vegetables. That's not me, but good, good for them. Those who feel free to eat anything must not look down on those who don't. And those who don't eat certain foods must not condemn those who do, for God has accepted them. Verse 13 says this, so let's stop condemning each other. Decide instead to live in a way that you will not cause another believer to stumble and fall. So what does this say about our theology? It says that differences are okay. We're not called to like get rid of all of our differences and become little mini-me's, you know, running around, or minions actually would be a better, uh, better thing, running around all talking the same, looking the same, wearing the same clothes. Like that's not what Paul tells us here. But our job is also not to be condemning and judging others and demanding that they change. Because often the things that we want other people to change are not actually things that affect ours or their salvation. Often, it's just preferences. If it is, a, if it is salvific, to use a, a theological word there, then that matters. But we need to be very careful that we are not condemning other followers of Jesus because they have different preferences. And that can come in a lot of different ways, right? So how do we live this out? Well, our lived out theology cannot be based on preferences or cultural values. It has to be based upon the Bible. 
upon knowing who God is, upon knowing the God who is revealed to us through the life and teachings of Jesus. That is what matters. And here's the other part. We need to completely avoid condemning other people. That's God's job. God's the judge, not me. You don't want me judging you. I don't want you judging me if we're being honest. I'm cool with Jesus doing that. That is what he is good at. I will leave that job to him, and we need to do the same. This was a big issue for the Roman church, and we're going to talk about it as we go through this book. Because, and, and here's why. Let me give you a little bit of historical information on the Roman church. So in the 40s, 50s, uh, Claudius Caesar was Caesar, and he expelled all of the Jewish people from Rome. He kicked them all out and said they couldn't come back. They were gone for a period of somewhere in between five to ten years. And then when he died, they returned. Uh, and so uh, that, this is told to us in Acts 18, uh, along with some other sections uh, of history, not within the Bible, uh, about this process. And Paul likely wrote the letter to the Romans about three years after they had returned after Jewish people had returned to the city. So think about the process that that church went through over this 15-year period. It went from primarily Jewish, because it started in, you know, in Israel, so it would be primarily Jewish, to completely Gentile, to primarily Gentile with some Jewish people who were a part of it which means that their theology went from a very Jewish-influenced Christianity to still Christianity, but not influenced by Judaism really hardly at all. And then the Jewish people returned back into it. You could see where some of the issues started to show up, uh, why their context matters as we read this. So with that, let's talk about these divisions for a second. Let's see what Paul says as he ends. Verse 17 of chapter 16. Now I make one more appeal, my dear brothers and sisters. Watch out for people who cause divisions and upset people's faith by teaching things contrary to what you have been taught. Stay away from them. Such people are not serving Christ our Lord. They are serving their own personal interests. By smooth talk and glowing words, they deceive innocent people. But everyone knows that you are obedient to the Lord, and this makes me very happy. I love when Paul like throws little things in there like that. That's nice. Uh, all of a sudden, cheery and happy thoughts. <laughs> I want you to be wise in doing right and staying innocent of any wrong. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. May the grace of our Lord Jesus be with you. Then he names the people who were there. For time's sake, I'm going to skip down to verse 25. Now all glory to God who is able to make you strong, just as my good news says. The message about Jesus Christ has revealed his plan for you Gentiles, a plan kept secret from the beginning of time. But now as the prophets foretold and as the eternal God has commanded, this message is made known to all Gentiles everywhere so that they too may believe and obey him. All glory to the only wise God through Jesus Christ forever. Amen. What's Paul's lived out theology as he ends this book for the Roman church? He wants them to be united as one through Jesus, living in peace and harmony. And he gets so excited about it that he starts praying. And I love his prayer. He's like, 
God equals peace, guys, and Satan equals division. So, God, I pray that you will just come and, like, crush Satan under your feet and, like, stomp on top of him. Uh, and, and then, you know, crush these divisions down under your feet as well. And come and bring your peace. Come and bring your spirit to this church. Bring unity again. Uh, bring your grace upon the church here. This is a prayer with feeling. And Paul's teaching us again here. He's saying that if we live our theology through prayer, then we're in a really good spot. How do we need to respond when there's divisions, when there's differences, when there's disunity? We need to get on our knees and ask Jesus to come and move. And if we're doing that, then we're in a really good position. We are living out what Jesus calls us to. How do we respond when we fight with each other, when we fight with our spouse or our kids or our parents, uh, when we have issues with coworkers, uh, with people who were around? How do we respond in those moments? If our response is to be lived out theology, then it means that we're going to get on our knees and we're going to ask Jesus to come and to move and to change us, to maybe change them, but to move on our behalf. And that's in a good spot. As the worship team comes on up, we are in a process of being shaped into the likeness of Jesus. So how do we do this well as a church today? Here's three things for us. One, friends, be intentional about breaking down barriers for people that are around you. Open up spaces for people to be able to live out what God has called them to do. Two, learn from people outside of your echo chamber. Uh, learn from people who have different experiences and lived out lives and preferences. And here's the third thing. Do everything possible to promote unity in the church. Pray for it. When you see disunity, don't get angry. Get serious. Get more of Jesus. Ask Jesus to come and move and work on our behalf. That's our response to it. Let's stand and pray. We're going to live out our theology and worship this morning uh, as we do every week. Jesus, I thank you that you are forming us actively today, that you are making us into image bearers even more clearly of who you are. So I just pray right now that any of the, the things that I said that may have poked at our preferences, pray that you'll give us grace to be able to say, okay, Jesus, how do you want me to change? I pray for any of us who, who are just kind of uh, in a place of joy because barriers have been broken down for us. I just say thank you for that. Thank you for space to be able to live out the callings that we have as your followers. And Jesus, I just pray right now for any divisions at this church that you will come and break through it, Jesus. Help us to love each other well. Help us to be motivated to love each other well, to seek peace, to seek unity in the midst of our very real lived out realities day in and day out. We love you, Jesus. We want to live lives that reflect that love. In Jesus' name.